Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to the Rebel, Reject, Create podcast. This is a deep dive episode where I'm going to reflect on the conversation I had with Amy Shelver. And Amy uh, was my most listened original episode. So it's really interesting to return to this conversation on a number of levels, uh, not the least of which Amy is without doubt one of the most creative human beings I've ever met in my life. Uh, she's an entrepreneur and a poet and a social activist. Um, yeah, she's just done an awful lot. And so it was very interesting that in the beginning of our conversation, Amy was making a distinction between uh, talent and skills in, in regards to creativity. And, and Amy's um, approach was that skills can be learned, but talent is just something that you've either got or you don't. And it was funny because if you listen back to that episode, you know, we just have the conversation. I don't say anything at all, which is not my practice in the podcast. But when I listened back to it in order to record this deep dive episode, I realized that I actually disagree completely uh, with Amy on this issue because I, I fear that it conflates two totally different things. One, our capacity to be creative in and of itself, and second, having a talent for a particular specific area of endeavor. These things are different. You know, when we say, oh, he's so talented, look at what a brilliant football player he is, or what an amazing dancer she is, are we actually claiming that they were born that way? And I just can't really see how that could possibly be true. Or rather, I can't see how we could separate all of the influences and the environmental influences and the subtle cues and tweaks and prickles that anyone gets when they start to acquire any kind of skill that would let us easily see, oh yeah, that was definitely uh, a talent rather than a skill that was learned. You know, how do we even have talent? You know, <laughs> I'm going to refer back to that famous NASA study on creativity where they claim that you know, 95% or 98% of kids age two uh, are genius level creatives. And by the time you get to adulthood, only 2% of people are still genius creatives. So that talent, that latency is there. And yet later in life, an astonishing number of people simply do not act on it or use it in any way, shape, or form. What seems to be more important is what Malcolm Gladwell goes on about in his book, Outliers. And again, my caveat, yes, <laughs> I know the book's not perfect. Um, but there's a whole bunch of studies that you can look into, and it goes under the name of the relative age effect, which you can easily find on Wikipedia, where with kids, as soon as you move into an environment which is grouped according to age groups, the children who are the older in the group um, are slightly more mature, slightly more coordinated, um, know slightly more, have been around for slightly longer, and therefore adopt new behaviors and new information somewhat faster. 
and therefore get more attention from their coaches and teachers and therefore improve somewhat faster. And when you magnify that effect over a period of years, you get to the stage where people appear to have natural talent when in actual fact, due to the fact that they had an age advantage at the beginning of the curve, they've had more input. I just don't know of any studies which show kids without those inputs. I mean, who would do that to a bunch of kids? So for me, it's not about your talent or your skills. What it's about is the capacity to be creative. When combined with an environment that stimulates you to acquire a certain skill or develop a certain talent, ends up with you being in a place where it appears to be effortless. But as, uh, <laughs> as your teacher probably said to you at school as well, there are no shortcuts. You know, the effortlessness is always as a result of large amounts of effort. But notwithstanding that small disagreement uh, <laughs> with Amy's point of view during the interview, no ways of knowing whether she still believes this, the other thing that Amy really spoke at length about and which I was very grateful that she did was this idea of collaboration. And when Amy described her career path, it really is one of focused collaboration. And, you know, collaboration is something that is very well covered in the literature on creativity. If you go all the way back to 20th century art movements, to Alan Gannett's Creative Communities, Csikszentmihalyi's book on creativity, um, there's a huge number of examples from which we can understand that people are drawn to centers where others are busy with similar things, thereby gaining momentum and inspiration from each other. And these examples go all the way back through history to Alexandria, Venice, Paris, to the dawn of time, where cities or centers of civilization have routinely attracted the big thinker, the great minds, and the hugely creative people. And this is a really heady cocktail because the place itself isn't the thing, or rather, it's not the only thing. You know, the location is important, but what's important about the location is how it facilitates the contact between a diverse range of people and makes it easy for them to meet, exchange views, collaborate, and conflict. And in history, where amazing scientific advances have been made, where great art has been made, where Lots of inventions have been made, like Silicon Valley. You can see that these are centers where that kind of free thinking is facilitated. And one of the biggest issues with our general hyper-individualistic view of high art and creativity is that it is seen as a solo, solitary pursuit. And nothing could be further from the truth. So the truth is always far more nuanced with the creators. Community, location, and access to information all playing a massive role in how that creator does what they do and why they do it. In essence, every creative act is a collaboration, at least between the agent, the actual creator, and their environment, but also often their community, whether it's receptive or antagonistic, and emerging technology or fading ideologies or 
a pushback against things that have been done before, against the historical information. It is a two-way street. So to seek out others in order to do great work, whether that is invention or art or business, is not only a well-established norm in science, art, and culture, it is in fact the only way we can transcend the boundaries of the norm to which we otherwise tend to conform. You know, if you are in a society or in a, um, a social grouping where everybody are utterly conformist and every move that deviates from that norm is beaten down and judged, you're going to leave or you're going to stop trying to deviate. And so it's incredibly important to bear in mind that collaboration, interaction, is the heart and soul of creativity, if not even part of the mechanics. It's a, it's a really powerful dynamic that I think gets overlooked a hell of a lot. So when Amy says that her whole career is about collaboration, in fact, she doesn't do it without collaboration, um, she's probably just being a lot more honest than most of us are who, who tend to want to uh, take individual credit for the end works. And, you know, this is encouraged. If you hear the latest hit by whoever huge star on the radio, the chances are that if they wrote any of the music and the lyrics, they were a co-writer and that there was a producer involved and a professional lyricist and a professional songwriter or, you know, the session musician, guitarist contributed the hook and blah, 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 blah. But we, of course, just prefer the easy to hook onto, oh, this is the latest hit by so-and-so. But watch out for that. It's way more collaborative than that. And then the final point that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into from the conversation with Amy was this story of where creativity comes from. And again, really happy that Amy dived into it. I mean, she's got her own business agendas. She's quite interested in seeing how we could digitize the creative process. And it's a hard question to answer because I don't think anyone really knows where creativity comes from. I mean, we know what contributes, contributes to it and how some of it works, both neurologically and psychologically. But as to why we are able to do it and how it really works, well, we're kind of still at a loss a little bit on the theory side of things here. So what Amy describes is as good a description as any. She talks about collecting dots, acquiring information, listening, reading, and so on, and then connecting dots, which she describes as putting experienced moments together in unexpected ways or seeing bridges and correlations between disparate pieces of information. And then Amy says something really interesting. She says she lets them percolate. It seems to be important, not just to Amy, but across the board, not to act too fast. But once a spark of an idea has flared, to let it simmer and let it percolate. Then you need to be open to further triggers and influences, other dots that join to the spark, which then leads to the development of that spark. And what is hugely necessary here is the openness and lack of judgment required to initiate all these th thought experiments and then do nothing with them until something else happens. Because you don't always know when or if any further inspiration will strike 
or any new correlations will be observed. And as Amy says, a huge number of these half-formed ideas just die on the vine, as it were. They just don't go anyway. Sometimes never, sometimes for a very long time. And so if you are too goal-directed when engaging with creativity and with change, it has the effect of influencing the thing in itself. It's a bit like the observer effect. So that means it'll turn out something like something else that already exists. It is only in letting go and surrendering to the uncertainty that spontaneous new connections, unaffected by prejudgment and goal setting, can coalesce into these new idea things that can then later be developed. And I guess this is probably why so many management types hate the idea of creativity. You know, it's also damn unpredictable. Except that it isn't. Because if you go here, you'll be constantly making connections, inspirations, and developments, and moving ahead, growing and changing. It just won't fit any predetermined agenda. It doesn't submit to control. So here we run smack into the idea of fuzzy goals as a better way of dealing with the creative urge. By leaning into a direction rather than a specified artifact, we give our creative urges the largest chances of success. And so again, this whole philosophy, which I talk about a lot, of, of letting go, of releasing judgment, of stepping into the gray, the ambiguity, and the uncertainty is super important on so many different levels. You don't also want to get in your own way. You don't want to make assumptions. And quite often, that's what we do when we set goals. I mean, at the very least, you assume that the goal you're setting is possible or desirable or even likely. And then once you set it, you take a set of actions which are pretty much predetermined by what the goal is. So when you take that all away, that's when you step into this really open space where the unexpected and the new can happen and where things can really change. But yes, it's a scary place to be. So if you've enjoyed listening to this deep dive episode where I reflect on the comments made on the interview with Amy Shelver, please like this channel, hit the subscribe button, whichever platform that you're on, and come back and listen to the rest. Uh, the original interview is also available in the archive, so don't hesitate to go and discover more about Ms. Amy Shelver. And remember to rebel against the status quo, to reject your own judgments and preconceptions, and thereby to leave room for you to create and come up with new answers and new ways of doing things. Until next time, I'm David Chisler.